Today our gospel lesson comes from the 13th chapter of Matthew, verses 44 through 52. Again, that is Matthew, chapter 13, verses 44 through 52. I invite you, if able, to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which someone found and hid, then in his joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good into baskets, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and a gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all of this? They answered, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. When Jesus had finished these parables, he left that place. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks. Amen. <clears throat> now this is our third Sunday in a row talking about the parables in this particular section of Matthew is actually in some areas called the parable section. It is not the only parables that are in the gospel, but these were intentionally put in and woven together in such a way as to bring information to the community of Matthew. And I've been talking a lot about that for the last two Sundays, but I'm not sure if I actually started with just kind of some basic stuff of what a parable is. We talked a little bit about that. But basically we know parables are stories Jesus uses to, you know, you, you basically share one thing, but you're teaching another. It's kind of like, I don't know, a riddle. Does anybody here like riddles? A couple. Other folks are going, I'd like to admit that, but uh, I don't have to uh, take myself out back and beat me up. Well, one of my favorite riddles. What walks on four legs in the morning, two legs in the afternoon, and three in the evening? Other than Jim, does anybody know that? No one? Go ahead, Jim, tell him the answer. You don't know it? It's man. As a baby, we're on all fours. And then we walk upright, and then later in life we walk with the assistance of a cane. So, you know, that one kind of has meaning. Now, there's other riddles that are just sort of fun and don't really mean that much. Um, here's one for you. What could go up a chimney down, but not down a chimney up? Okay, now I see why y'all don't like riddles. <laughs> it's an umbrella. An umbrella. See, you, when you finally get told the answer, you go, exactly, I get it. Of course, that one really doesn't have any deep-seated meaning. It's just, just a fun thing to think about. But, you know, oftentimes parables are that way. Like when Jesus was telling the parables that he told, I did, he gave you the answer. But can you imagine if I hadn't told you and you didn't have access to Google? See, back in the old days, there, you know, for our younger folks, there was a time when you couldn't go home and Google everything, and if you didn't know something... 
you had to ask other people or just go without knowing. But in this case, we have parables that Jesus talked about and parables that he doesn't. And today, he doesn't explain any of these. He simply gives three parables, and then he asks them, do you understand all of this? And what did they say? Yes. Just like if after asking the question, I said, y'all know what that, that is, a lot of you would go, yeah, sure we do. You know, it's interesting with the parables, while they do have a specific meaning and a certain teaching that is attached to them, they also have multiple applications throughout the lives of the various people that hear them. It's kind of like a type of question that I bet y'all wish that I would ask more of and less of my straightforward ones. How many of y'all in here wish that all my questions would be rhetorical? (laughs) That would be great. Because the nice thing about a rhetorical question is you don't have to answer it. The even nicer part is is when 95% of the people in the room know that to be rhetorical, and there's always that one or two people that shout out an answer anyways. One of my favorite ones, is it hot enough for you? That's a great rhetorical question. Because no one in their right mind is like, no, I'd really like to be hotter. Matter of fact, I was thinking after church, I'm going to go sit in my car in the parking lot and roll all the windows up. Maybe get a nice sweater vest. You know, but while some rhetorical questions aren't really that important, others cause us to think, just like some of the riddles that we are faced with cause our mind to think. And a lot of the parables, actually all of the parables Jesus spoke in were meant to either teach a lesson right away in which he would explain it or cause people to think and ponder and then even discuss in groups later what they meant. Now, some seem pretty obvious. You find a treasure in a field, obviously of great value, and you go and sell, raise capital, so that you can buy the field. Pretty straightforward. How many of us think that's a good deal? How many of you, if I told you that if you invested $100 in something, you get $1,000 back, would do it? I'm not talking about some Ponzi scheme or some pyramid thing. A genuine investment. Okay, so that's what Jesus is saying. If someone found a treasure in a field and he went and sold everything, and they go, yeah, that makes sense. That's a good thing. You see something of great value, and you do whatever you can to get that thing of great value. He doubled down and then talked about the merchant who was looking for pearls and finds a pearl of great value. And so he sells off whatever he has to sell off in order to obtain this one thing. He compares both of these things to the kingdom of God, which is pretty straightforward, which is, what do you think is the greatest achievement any of us will ever have in our lives? Being called children of God, going to heaven, being people of the kingdom. I mean, that, I'm not saying that we want to go right away. As a matter of fact, that's one of my favorite quotes from an early theologian. You know, Lord, make me righteous and holy, and bring me into thy presence. Only, not just yet. You see, these parables are somewhat simple in the fact that we know that in order to receive something of unsurpassing greatness, that sometimes we have to sacrifice or spend some of what we have to get there. It was even mentioned in our children's day. It's not just, you know, 
what, what, what is better to do, but what do you actually do? That would have been a better survey. Yeah. We can all say, what would be better? Oh, definitely, brush my teeth. Of course, I have to admit that my first thought was, brush my teeth with gummy bears? Two birds, one stone? Probably not so good. And I wait until the children were gone to say it because I don't want to give them any bad ideas. But you see, we all know that our greatest thing would be the kingdom of God. We all know that a relationship with God is the most important thing in our lives. But we also know that it requires something from us. It requires for us to be engaged, to be involved, to read scripture, to pray, to gather in groups. And I'm not just talking about a Sunday morning at church, but I'm talking about with other Christians in our homes, at other events that we do, to bring God into the workplace with those who are like-minded. It requires us to act at some level, to get which is that which is greater, which is the kingdom. Now, in life, we're talking about what is the greatest. As I was thinking about this, it kind of reminded me, even though we didn't read this today, but it's, it's a very common passage, so I think you'll remember it. It's from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the 13th chapter, often called the love chapter, if you will. And it ends with this. Faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. And of course, that's because God is love. And God loves us. So the greatest thing we can aspire to is this love. Now, I'm going to pose a rhetorical question to you and then pause a little bit while we think about it. I'm not pausing for answers like I do sometimes. This is rhetorical. Is it better to love or to be loved? That's a hard one, isn't it? You know, some of us would say, well, it's better to love because we want to be in that position of giving because, let's face it, how many of you, if someone was hurting and in need, would immediately, and this one is not rhetorical, would immediately do what you can to help your neighbor out, especially if it's someone you really liked? Show of hands. Who would help out someone they really liked? Okay, now how many of you, if they were in need, and someone that really liked you offered to help you would say, no, I'm okay? Probably the same people. It's a lot easier to be helped or to help than to be helped. Well, I think the same is true of love. But I'll tell you, it's not really a matter of which is better, it's which is more possible for us. And the truth is, when it comes to love, while we are capable of loving, we are not as capable of loving as God is capable of loving us. It's kind of like, to use a metaphor, if you will, parents and babies. I'm going to pick on y'all because y'all have some of the newest ones. How much do you love that little boy? Oh, it just makes your heart swell, doesn't it? Now, I know he likes you, I know he, he, but, but how much do you think he really loves you in the same way? I mean, first of all, he loves your wife better. Their <laughs> <laughs> heartbeat and all that, Susan. Now, granted, later on when you teach him to, uh, you know, 
hunt or fish or do stuff like that. You know, they'll be, they'll be daddy time. But the hard part is, is our kids don't love us in the same way that we love them. Now, as they grow, grow up, they get closer. And I'll quit picking on you. I'll pick on the teenagers now. Now, I know you love your parents. But do you honestly think that you love them in the same way that they love you? Of course not, because you give them gray hair <laughs> and worry lines. But that's okay. They did that to their parents. It's a cycle. It's just your turn. See, the truth is, is while it is great to love, we are not as capable of loving others as we are of being loved, especially when it comes to the love of our Father in heaven. He loves us so much that he sent his son into this world to die in our place. He loves us so much that even when we ourselves cannot do what we need to do. Remember I talked about the ways in which we get closer to God? Reading scripture, praying. When Paul talked about that today, he says, we don't even know how to pray. Now how many Christians today would say, yeah, that's true, we don't know how to pray. I know how to pray. It's real simple. You know, you bow your head, you close your eyes. Well, most people close their eyes. I used to like to do this when I was a kid. Especially when I was with my Baptist friends and they were doing the uh, call to the altar. Okay, just raise your hand. Man, my eyes never closed in. I saw you in school last week. You better tell them. The simple fact is, Paul isn't saying we don't know how to pray at all. But we pray as a child reasons. That's hard for us sometimes because we're mature and we think we know a lot. But no matter how mature you are in your faith, no matter how long you've been doing this, there's always room for improvement. Does anybody in here think that they pray in the same way that Jesus Christ prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? Does anybody think that they're capable of that kind of connection to God? Be praying so hard that your sweat comes down like drops of blood on the ground, and yet even in the the anguish and the torment, he still said, but thy will be done. We say the words, thy will be done, but oftentimes, we caveat that with thy will be done, especially if it breaks my way. Especially if it's similar to what I wanted in the first place. It's a hard thing to truly just let go and let God have everything. It's easy in a moment to say, okay, Lord, you have this, especially in a moment of desperation when there really seems to be nothing else. Like the man hanging off a cliff by just a rope. It's easy at that moment to pray fiercely. Lord, save me. Lord, help me. Lord, do this. Whatever it is, thy will be done. Can you imagine if you were that man and you heard a voice from on high saying, okay, my will be done, let go of the rope. I'd like a second opinion. Because sometimes in life it's hard to have that kind of faith. It's easy to have the mid-range faith, but that extreme faith can be very difficult, especially if it's not, in that case it might be, to let go. Now, there is a joke about that, and of course the man that does finally let go, he realizes because he couldn't see, he had missed out the fact that he was hanging two feet above the ledge and was rescued for it. That's the good way. But what if letting go actually means free falling? 
then what do you pray in that free fall? What is it when you say, thy will be done, I trust in you, Lord, but then life continues to just throw punches left and right? When bad after bad things happen, when tough breaks are seems like the only breaks we get, how is it that we continue to have faith in times like that? How easy is it to say, Lord, I was faithful. Lord, we start recounting all the things. I went to Sunday school I had a 95% attendance rate. I was, I was pretty good. Okay, 85, but that's still a B. Still in the zone. How easy is it for us or how common is it for us to be facing these things in our lives, these hard things, to slip from thy will be done to can you help me out, Lord? I have done X, Y, and Z. Or if you don't have a good bank account with good deeds, how many of us try this? If you get me out of this, Lord, I will then do A, B, and C. Now, here's the problem with negotiating with God in a manner like that. God created everything, did he not? Amen? So what does God need from us? So if God doesn't need anything from us, what kind of bargaining chip is that? Also, if God doesn't need anything from us, all that we've given him, what does that actually account to? You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't trade for it. After all, it's love. But the great part is, is we don't have to earn God's love. He gives it. And so what I would say to you from my earlier question is, it is better in the case of this to be loved than to love. Because being loved by God is the only thing that actually allows us to truly love him back. And I bring you back to the children. When we love our children, when we care for them, they may not always show, they may not always demonstrate it, but as we do and they grow, what do they give us back? They give us back love. And it doesn't have to be equal to. It doesn't have to be in line with. It doesn't have to be the same because that's not how love works. It's not a comparison. God first loved us so that we may love him. We are required to give back to him, not because it somehow is buying like this field, but it is because he has first given to us so much greatness. So much wealth. It even says it, that he foreknew us. Because he foreknew us, what did he do? He predestined. Because we were predestined, we were chosen. We were the elect. In other words, God chose us. He's even, Jesus says this to his disciples, I chose you. You did not choose me. So all of us that have a relationship with God is because God first chose to have that relationship with us. Which, on the one hand, it's scary because it takes away our choice. Well, what did I have to do with it then? If this predestination stuff is true and real and it sounds really harsh, where's my role? What did I do? And it's hard to hear this, but I'm going to tell you, you did nothing. Kind of like what you did to appear on planet Earth to begin with. It wasn't your call. It wasn't your action. You just happened to have two people got together at the right time and made you. That's it. 
Now, fortunately, if you're here today and you're older, that meant that they kind of liked you and they kept you around. And if, as you got older and older, it means that you've done some good things that people in general have let you be here. But the simple fact is, none of us deserve to be on this planet, which means none of us deserve God's love. But isn't that kind of a greater gift? Not an earning statement, not something that we demand and say, I earn this, you owe this to me, but for God to give his love freely and totally and purely. I mean, like I said, the closest thing I can point this to is watching a mother and a father with a newborn baby. Seeing that joy. Now, granted, after a couple of months of no sleep, there's also a mixes in with it. But that's just God keeping it real for you. Letting you know, you know, this world, not perfect. Perfect comes later. But our God has first loved us. Our God has built a kingdom which is that treasure hidden in the field, which is that pearl of great value, which is that ultimate gift. And he has done it not because we deserved it, but because he chose to. And what God chooses to do Guess what? It happens. Which is a good thing. Because if we really took stock of ourselves, if we really looked at the sum total of our lives, if we were to really put up a ledger sheet of the good and the bad and the indifferent that we've had, I don't think I want to see that scorecard. I'd much rather like the scorecard where it gets thrown out and God just goes, an A for you, an A for you, an A for you. Everybody gets an A. Everybody gets to come. Everybody who is foreknown, predestined, and elect and chosen are kingdom people. Praise be to God who first loved us. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, I give you thanks and praise for this day, I thank you for these scriptures, for these parables. I thank you for the lessons that you have given unto us. Mostly, Lord, I thank you that you first loved us and that you call us into a relationship with you because that is your nature and that is your will. So we praise you through our Lord and Savior's name, Jesus the Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen.